I like to ride the Omnibus Anova. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Scooby-Doo. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who thinks that the new medical study that they just heard about in the news is as difficult to comprehend as learning to drive a stick shift, I just... just Did you just learn? No, I learned a long time ago. Oh. But I found it so difficult when I learned. Challenge. You guys know you guys found it easy? Yeah. Um, n- relatively, but, yeah. but you know, I burned out a clutch. Yeah, that's my point. Oof. Yeah. I'm Matt Fox, Professor of Epidemiology and Global Health, here with Don, Thea, and Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Hello. Hey, Matt. And we are here, as always, in the Boston University Godly Studio. Before we get started, we did want to take a second to remind you about the Population Health Exchange, which is Boston University School of Public Health's resource hub for lifelong learning. Find out more at www.pophealthex.org, where you'll find this podcast, as well as many other population health learning programs and tools. And I also wanted to make a special plug. Uh, the Population Health uh, Exchange is having its Summer Institute again this year. Uh, it's the week of June 11th and June 18th here at the Boston University School of Public Health, uh, where you can come and take uh, courses in things like systematic reviews and meta-analysis or SAS course. It's a, it's a good time and much learning is had. So go ahead to the Population Health EX website and you can find out more information and register. And a reminder, go ahead and uh, give us a rating on iTunes. Give us a review, especially if you like the podcast. It'll help others find us. Uh, So just a a little bit of housekeeping. I did want to point out that uh, I've gone back into the archives and looked at our our download statistics. And I, I would like to say... What is our? What do you think was our? I would like to ask you. Excuse me. What is our highest, most downloaded episode, except for the first one, which of course gets the most downloads because it's where often people will start. By the way, don't start with the first one. I bet yeah. it was the one where it was really funny. Yeah. So none of them. Have we recorded that one yet? Not yet. Guess. It was the calcium one, wasn't it? It was not the calcium one. Was it the? Oh, it was the diarrhea one? Was it? No, it can't be that one. Was it the? Wait, define, what do you mean the diarrhea one? The, the one where the they, the capsules. The poop pill. The poop pill. No way. Yes. No. And I would like to say that was my idea, and you guys poo pooed it oh, for a stop. bit, and then I finally convinced you to do it. It's our most downloaded episode. Wow. Just wanna wow. just wanna point that out. Okay, so onto the show. Makes me worry about our listeners. Uh, makes me worry about us. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to do a follow-up podcast to episode 19, which I highly recommend you go back and listen to, um, which was a episode 19, we, we looked at a systematic review of the literature on antidepressants. And as uh, we were going through that, Chris alerted us to a study that was a reanalysis of a drug trial which was looking at the benefits of two different antidepressants in adolescence. Um, And it's got a really sort of fascinating story that goes along with it. So it's not a new study, but we thought it was worth getting into. In the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we are going to talk about the registered reports revolution. Registered reports revolution. That's right. Which is going on in the psychology world or sociology. I'm not sure exactly where it's going on right now and what we can learn from it in our world. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing, our amusing, we will get into some things that gave us the giggles or just blew our minds. So let's get into it. Segment one. So as I say, we're going to go back a bit. uh, And this will be sort of like our our podcast that we did on MMR 
and autism and the fraud that was perpetrated, uh, research fraud that went on around MMR and autism, which also I highly recommend you go back. Uh, that was also one of our highest downloaded episodes. Um, and so what we're going to look at today is an article that did a reanalysis of data from a trial that compared two antidepressant drugs, paroxetine and imipramine. Did I say that right, Chris? Sure did. Uh, compared those to placebo for treatment of major depression in adolescence. The, the new study was published in the British Medical Journal. I, we say BMJ a lot, but people probably don't always know that that's the British Medical Journal. So this had first author uh, Joanna Lenuri of the School of Medical Sciences, Bangor, Bangor University in Wales. Yeah, Bangor. Yeah. Bangor, like in Maine? Uh, yeah. Uh, and the title is Restoring Study 329, Efficacy and Harms of Paroxetine and Imipramine in Treating Treatment of Major Depressant in Adolescents. Now, the study was published in 2015, but this study reanalyzes data from a study published in 2001 that was funded by SmithKline-Beacham. The uh, original study was published in the Journal of American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry with Martin Keller as the first author from the Department of Psychiatry at Brown University. Now, I've got no headlines on either one of these two studies because they're from so long ago. But, Don, can you start off by sort of talking us through the original study and then the, the reanalysis and why it was done? Yeah. So, it's, so essentially, I'm gonna, uh, we're going to talk about two analyses of the same data set. So what I want to do is I want to sort of walk you through the original paper, as Matt mentioned, which was studied, which was published in 2001 by Keller et al. Um, And essentially what they were trying to do is do this head-to-head comparison um, against placebo of two two antidepressants, one of which was a tricyclic and the other one was a, uh, at the time, um, a relatively new one called um, paroxetine. And um, there had been a remarkably few number of randomized controlled trials on these at the time, and none in adolescence. So the, the authors felt that there was, a, there was a real unmet need in terms of trying to look at both the efficacy and the safety of paroxetine and amipramine um, compared to placebo in adolescence. So this was done um, in 10 um, psychiatric centers, academic centers. Uh, I think it was just limited to the United States. It may have been your I believe so. No, I think it was in the U.S. Right. So um, it was double-blind, placebo-controlled trial to assess efficacy and safety with parallel design, meaning that the paroxetine was compared with placebo, as was imipramine compared with placebo. And they, uh, they enrolled males and females, 12 to 18 year, years old adolescents, um, who had a current episode of a major depression that was, had lasted at least eight weeks at the time of enrollment. And the way they measured this is something called a Hamilton score, which is, which is really a, a, a score of 17 items. And the higher the score, the more depressed you are. So the, these children had to have um, 12 out of 17 items positive on that score. Um, they were excluded if they had um, other serious illnesses, I think including a, a suicide a, a yes. attempt in the, in the recent past. And the primary outcome was an improvement in this score such that the number went from 12 to less than eight, which is an improvement in your depression, um, or a 50% reduction at eight weeks over what it was at baseline. Um, There are a bunch of secondary outcomes in terms of self-perception and other kinds of depression scales sort of more limited. There was a seven to 14 day screening phase to ensure that depression was persistent and severe and the allocation was one, one, one um, across the three three groups. 
the children, the adolescents were seen weekly, all three groups, with supportive measures. It's something that we talked about in the last podcast in terms of there are other, other aspects to the management of um, depression that may not have nothing to do with, uh, with the, the drug itself. Um, they had 425 screened and then 275 randomly assigned to the experimental groups, which is interesting because originally, and we'll get into this, originally in the protocol, they said they're going to assign 300, but halfway through, they determined that the variance was less so that they could dial back that, that final number. So it's 300. Instead of 300 across all groups, it was 275. Um, the efficacy results were calculated on all, um, if, the, if the subject had at least one visit after the baseline. And there were two ways that they, um, they uh, did the statistics where they, they, they counted the outcomes. One was the last observation carried forward. We talked about that before, so that if somebody had two out of the eight, uh, two out of the eight visits, they would take what their score was on that second visit and carry it forward. Um, and then the other way they, they um, did the analysis is they looked at only um, adolescents who had completed all eight weeks of visits. And I think that ended up being about 69% yeah. of all of the adolescents yep. that, were, that were enrolled. Um, there was um, some non-compliers and the distribution of non-compliance um, in terms of dropouts was um, 24% placebo, 28% paroxetine, 40% in imipramine, because imipramine is a, a medication that we know has cardiac side effects, so it has known to have, have more side effects. And essentially, um, the, with both the um, uh, last observation carried forward analysis and the completer analysis, their conclusion was that um, paroxetine ha- um, was more efficacious, 63%, of the adolescents in that arm achieved the outcome as compared with 50% in the imipramine group and 46% in the placebo group. And those are statistically significant differences? The paroxetine was yeah. at, at the 0.02 level. Yep. Um, and they also... They also put, For these was, secondary endpoints. I thought it was 0.02, but... The p-value was 0.02, yeah. you're saying? Yeah, p-value is 0.02. Yep. Um, and they also they also looked at adverse events, which um, in 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 this setting occur relatively rarely. And they reported any adverse event, um, and they categorized them. And they 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 found that there was a slight increase in um, adverse events in the paroxetine group, and as compared to the imipramine group and the placebo group. So their interpretation was efficacious and not that uh, harmful. So then what the Nuri et al. Um, went back and um, actually got the original data from the pharmaceutical um, company because there, there, there had been a lawsuit and, and they were able to get access to the data, which is not the kind of thing that I think pharmaceutical companies are necessarily going to give up voluntarily. But they tend to be reluctant. They tend to be reluctant. The, the, the data that they got was enormous. I mean, the amount of information uh, that, 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 that goes into studies like this is huge. And Chris, you've had yeah. personal experience with this, and you know, it's a truckload yeah. of data that goes down to the FDA before um, the results of this uh, study like this can be included in the indication profile for a particular medication. So who but, got the data? So, so the second set of reviewers got the data. Researchers. Researchers. Um, got the original data from the pharmaceutical company, and they went through it um, very, very carefully. And what they wanted to do was essentially they wanted to do a reanalysis of these data using the original criteria that had been outlined in the protocol. And one of the things that they note was that the outcomes that were reported on were not outcomes that were part of the original protocol. 
So they kind of added on the outcomes after the fact. It was before the data were unblinded, but it was still after the fact. So at this point, so you're not you're not saying at this point that they they, they changed the data, and you're saying they they simply decided to present. Uh, outcomes that were not originally specified in the protocol. Correct. And I, I can't remember, when you say they weren't specified, were they not in the protocol at all, or they just were not specified they were not in, as... They were not in the protocol at all. At all. And and the protocol had been amended multiple times, so they had many opportunities to do this, but but that none of these endpoints actually ended up in the protocol itself. Okay. So the, so, so the idea was they, they cherry-picked, you could say. Yes. The, the outcomes that were beneficial to them to present. And in, ter- in, in terms of, of the original study, the, the, the outcomes that supported the efficacy claim and the harm claim um, were the ones that were not originally specified. The post hoc. Post hoc. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, so they, 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 they collected the data, they um, adhered to the original data, pl- uh, data analysis plan, and then they went back into the case report forms and they looked at the um, original data in terms of harm. And I'll come to that in a second. What they, what they, um, they, they found was that um, there, the statistical approach that the original authors used was not um, actually necessarily fair. The last observation carried forward was sort of state-of-the-art at the time in 2001. They used two different techniques, which were are more relevant for, for, for this point in time. It was um, multiple imputation and mixed models, which are now considered to be superior approaches, right? Yeah, and I do think it's worth pointing out, those were the last observation carried forward has been shown to be a biased approach. But, <laughs> Duh. But it was it was the accepted standard of care at right. the time that they did this. So right. there was nothing, I don't think there was anything funny going on then the, then the other thing that these the second set of authors noted that uh, they thought was a deviation was uh, from the protocol was that, and Matt, you'll have to sort of walk us through this a little bit more detail, that a pairwise analysis of two of the three groups was done when the omnibus ANOVA showed no significance. Yeah. Maybe what I'll do is I'll turn it over to you so you can flesh that out a little bit. I like us. to ride the omnibus ANOVA. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Scooby-Doo. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Keep going. Uh, all right. So in any event, so when when they used um, the original protocol and they used the the different statistical methods, they basically came up with um, a, a null finding that that the paroxetine was not any more efficacious, um, which was a, a bit concerning. But in my opinion, even more concerning was that when they went back to the case report forms, they identified a whole bunch of adverse events that had not previously been reported. There were yeah. 265 yeah. adverse events reported in the paper. The reanalysis found 481 adverse events. Um, and heavily skewed towards the Prozac arm. And heavily skewed towards Pro, the sorry, Prozac. Sorry, we, we haven't said Prozac. Is, which oh, drug fluoxetine, is Fluoxetine, sorry. Right, so the underestimates of adverse yeah, events were... Drugs. Paroxetine? Paroxetine was... Is this paroxetine or fluoxetine? <laughs> not no, fluoxetine. It's paroxetine. Yeah. So pro, Paxil. 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 Thank you. So, so the underestimates of the adverse events were 14% in the paroxetine group, 7% in the imipramine group, and 13% in the placebo group. So they, they didn't report an overabundance of adverse events in the paroxetine group. Can, yeah. I just, can we just clarify for people? So paroxetine is Paxil. Paxil. Imipramine is... Uh, imipramine, I, I think we just called yeah, it. It's yeah. probably called something. Okay. I, I have no idea. But, but, the, but the one it's, we're most concerned about here, which because it was reported Paxil. to have shown a benefit, is Paxil, which is... Pac, say it. Right. Paroxetine, paroxetine, which is one of these SSRI Prozac-like drugs. Yep. 
So, and then, and then the other thing was that they also found that um, there were 11 serious adverse events in the paroxetine group versus two in the placebo. So the bottom line of the reanalysis is, in fact, that um, the original the original study found efficacy and no harm. The reanalysis found no efficacy and more harm. It's considerable right. harm. Considerable harm. Yeah. 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 Chris. Uh, so obviously this is, this is a really impressive piece of work. I mean, this is not, um, you know, when you look at the, um, the MMR case that we looked at in one of the earlier episodes, you know, the number of cases that the, the, the reporter had to track down to solve, you know, to, to identify that there, these cases were misreported was what, what, like 30, Mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. I mean here, okay. They didn't have to track people down, but they, the, the amount of data that went into this 77,000 pages, 77,000 pages. And it wasn't just 77,000 pages, but they couldn't actually access all the data. Some of it had to uh, be accessed through an agreement and a negotiation with the drug company in which allowed them to only view it via a remote desktop type scenario. So they couldn't actually go through it all. They couldn't print it, in other words. They had to look at it on a screen. On a screen. One at a time. One at a time. And, they, and so they, they made the decision that they couldn't actually look at all the data. So we don't actually know about all of it. Um, it's a really, this is, this is an amazing piece of work. Um, yeah. But Chris, what's, your, what's your, your take on the overall story? Well, I wanted to start you... by just qu- quoting the, the Keller et al. paper in their conclusion. The original. The original paper from 2001. And this is the conclusion statement. It says, the findings of this study provide evidence of the efficacy and safety of the SSRI paroxetine in the treatment of adolescent depression. That is a pretty definitive, like, Yahoo, we have... You know, assertive this, statement. We have an, this is an assertive statement of, of safety and efficacy. And th- this is relevant because for those who are not aware, depression, treating depression in adolescence is notoriously difficult. It's one of the big gaps in psychiatry where traditional antidepressants have, have been very impotent. So there was a lot of enthusiasm for this new class of drugs, the Prozac-like drugs, the SSRIs, that maybe this would be the salvation for treating. It was sort of like the holy grail of treatment of, of adolescent depression. Um, now, that was in 2001. This paper was enormously influential in terms of changing the treatment paradigm um, to use the, to promote the use of this class of drugs. But you know, now 16, 17 years later, what has emerged is that you know, first of all, the study has been largely discredited, and has, the enormous criticism have been leveled of it. The the company itself was slapped with a three billion dollar. Uh, fine for off-label marketing of of these drugs to adolescents without actually having an indication. So they 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 jumped the gun on this, um, and then the, the more troubling thing is that it, that there was you know a, a trickle 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 of of reports that that adolescents who were started on SSRIs had an, an increased risk of suicide. Um, and so when we go back and we look at the riot data, the, the, the part of the, the information right. data, the, um, the reanalysis in the BMJ, you know, this, this, this new, uh, the, the repeat, and the secondary, the second analysis of the original data, when, you know, beyond saying, you know, the drugs were relatively impotent, they did not change depression outcomes. What they did do is to increase the risk of certain side effects. And the most worrisome, particularly in hindsight, are suicidal ideations. And so when we look at the original Keller paper, um, the original, yep, 2001, uh, comparing the three groups, uh, Paxil, you know, uh, um, paroxetine, imipramine, and placebo, respectively, they were five, three, and one event in each of those arms, respectively. So, and the, uh, so the 
they were roughly the same size groups. And they were roughly the same yeah. size groups. So five, you know, does kind of look like there's a, a trend towards, you know, this is where a trend towards significance. But here they were happy to say there was no trend towards significance because the numbers were too low. And so they could sort of hide behind the lack of statistical significance as a shield, which, as you know, is, is a little bit... Uh, Saucy. When he I says say. you, he's talking to Don. I'm talking to, uh, <laughs> but you're li- but looking I'm at looking you. at fondly at Matt and thinking of Don. <laughs> um, oh dear. Oh dear. Please don't look. But in the in the reanalysis, um, that five and three and one suicidal ideation events ballooned to eleven, four and two. Um, where there were 11 suicidal uh, ideations or attempts in the Paxil group. And that was not in the manuscript, nor was it, in fact, in the the clinical study report from Smith-Klein-Beacham. So there was an underreporting in both cases. Um, But the the Keller paper even shaves it finer, removing some of the the suicidal uh, um, events that were reported in the clinical study report. And so it really hid what we now look back and say, you know, say, you know, with hindsight, that this is the most important, you know, liability of the SSRIs in adolescence is the risk of suicide. And the data were actually right there, but we're, we're not, you know, so how, how it's, did they, it's a really how, shocking uh, how did story. They, how did they do this? How did they, how did they pull this off? Who, the, the, the original? original? The original authors, how did they pull off this sort of underreporting? Of these adverse events. Well, the, the, by paper, was, the paper was ghostwritten by yes. Smith Klein Beecham. So the, the authors, Keller and, and, and colleagues, had relatively little to do with the analysis. They certainly would not have there's, had access to the data themselves. And I couldn't I couldn't access it, but there's a paper that talks about this, right? The ghostwriting aspect that's been found out that that the first author didn't actually write the paper. But what they did, from my understanding, what, one, one of the ways they pulled this off was by manipulating their assumptions. So what they said in the original paper was that we are going to report on adverse events that occur at greater than a 5% frequency. Mm. And they also had this very complex matrix of categorization. And you could easily justify in your mind that a particular adverse event could go in a cardiac, cardiovascular category or a a neurological category. And it seems to me that they kind of may have intentionally spread them out so that these adverse events wouldn't reach that 5% threshold and therefore didn't need to be included. Yeah. So, yeah, I I think it was, I, 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 I don't know whether it was the fully intentional or whether it was only partially intentional, but. My guess is that the authors were unwitting on this. Right. Um, mm. But that doesn't really get them off the hook because no. if you put your name on a paper, you're saying you're the guarantor of what the paper says. Mm. And you can't say, well, we didn't actually do the analysis and we didn't actually write the paper and we just took the kudos for having our names published. Right. And, and that's, pa- that's no defense. And paper presentation now has become a lot more transparent in that way. Now you have to state what role you took in you know, in the in, in the uh, generation of these of these uh, data, it doesn't solve the problem. Doesn't but solve the problem. But it's, but, it's, but, but it's, it's studies like this that I think provided the impetus sure. to improve that that transparency. Sure. So can I uh, jump in here? So I, I I have to say this. So I this is an amazing piece of work. This this reanalysis. The fact they were get this data in the first place was phenomenal. Um, I found this article a little bit hard to read, largely because it's it's expansive. I mean, it's much larger than a normal article, but also because I was quite distracted in that this sort of is, this is like a mystery novel. And so I found myself, kept I kept in my 
mind, I kept sort of wandering off to, well, I wonder whatever happened to this first author guy. And I wonder, you know, why was the paper not retracted? And was this paper cited in the in the meta-analysis that we reviewed? I think the answer is no, because that was restricted to adults. I went and looked. It's not in there. Who was the ghostwriter? You know, I, I just, there were so many avenues that I wanted to go down. Uh, I found it really difficult to to focus on the real issues, which were twofold, as you say. One, deviations from their protocol, not doing exactly what they said they were going to do, which benefited them, and not uh, counting or depending on how you you summarize it, they, they they sort of manipulated the data on the adverse events to to make it look better than it was. But I, I have to admit, I had some real problems with the the way that the original study went, regardless of whether or not there was manipulation, even if you took this data at face value. And I say that because for, for many of the reasons that we talked about when we talked about the meta-analysis of the depression studies, which is this was a study of 90-ish patients per arm. This is a small study that, you know, you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to bet the farm on, even if it were perfectly correct. Particularly in terms of safety. It was an eight-week study, so we're not talking about long-term follow-up. So long, And it had 31% dropout, as you pointed out. So we know we have a study with problems. There were also some baseline imbalances between arms, which you would expect in a study where only 90 patients were randomized per arm. So... I'm a little shocked at the amount of weight that was put into this original study to begin with. I, you know, let's say it was totally non-fraudulent that they had done everything right. I still, this wouldn't be enough to convince me that this is great. Now, what I did was I took the two figures from the two articles. So this is uh, the uh, original and the new article. I know the reader, the listener can't see this, but I just sort of put them next to each other so that I could sort of see what's happening. And uh, from left to right, what you have is, depression dropping over time, but it's dropping in all three groups, placebo, imipramine, and pl- uh, paroxetine. And, the, and the, three look, um, the three lines look almost superimposed. And they look almost the same in both the new analysis and the old analysis. Why? Because in terms of the main analysis, the, the problem wasn't manipulation of the data. It was manipulation of the statistics, as you said, Don. So what did they do? They, they essentially said in their protocol, we're going to do this kind of statistical test that looks for differences overall between three groups. If we find that, then we'll do comparisons of the, the individual. The pairwise analysis. Yeah. Group one to two, group one, one to, to three, you know, two to three. Then we'll find out if, if one drug is better than placebo or not. And what the, what the new analysis says is we didn't find any benefit overall. So the, uh, in, in comparing all three, and so we should never have looked at the two on their the own. Pairwise analysis. Okay, yeah. I, as you know, I hate this. This is this is this is foolishness to yeah. me. Yeah. Well, you know whether it's significant on this test versus that test or not Doesn't to me matter. is totally irrelevant. Whether you had specified it in advance or not to me is irrelevant. What matters is these two figures, the one from the old study and the new study, are identical and both show no difference. There's pretty much nothing going on. So the statistically significant benefit that they saw in the original study is a tiny benefit. Yeah. And that should have been the the message to begin with, right. especially when you know that tiny benefit is based off of a study that had 31% dropout, that had uh, some baseline imbalances. Where the blinding uh, was apparently corrupted. That, that, you know, there were, there were problems. And so the yeah. idea that you would ever have said that this is a study that was worthy of of approving this for I, I don't know that they did but i'm just saying that you would you would say this is the this is the information that tells us we should be treating adolescents with this drug is just so, suspect so, to me now it's hard right because if you have no treatment 
then you know a small improvement is is probably worth it. But so I don't mean to imply that this is easy. Yeah. So Chris, you've been involved in in, in providing an application um, somewhat similar to what would have been provided the FDA for for this study. Um, is 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 Matt pointing out a too low threshold for acceptance of efficacy in a study like this as the main the main outcome that the FDA would use to uh, to to generate a, a, a an indication for this drug? Yes, I think this this and in fact it 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 did not right. So it's, right. they were this is why they got that fine that they were not able to say demonstrate efficacy and safety um, to the satisfaction of the regulator, mm. but then they went so ahead and marketed it anyway uh-huh. on the largely on the basis of Keller because in fact Keller was not the first study to look at the efficacy and safety of SSRI drugs in adolescents. It's just that the other studies had not found any benefit, and so this was the outlier. Um, and that then subsequently drove the practice and led to this. I mean, if you look at the title here, you know, the original paper, Efficacy of Paroxetine in the Treatment of Adolescent Major Depression in Randomized Controlled Trial, a more accurate title would be Lack of ex- Efficacy of Paroxetine versus Placebo and Possible you know, Induction of Suicidal Ideation. I mean, that would have, in fact, described what they found. Yeah. Okay. Um, warning. So, black box warning. Do not use. So, so an amazing piece of work. Really, really uh, impressive. So let me let me end with one thing, which is that I. Um, so so one of the criticisms here is that they didn't follow their protocol, right? They they essentially what they did was um, they, in addition to the outcome that we just talked about, where there really wasn't much going on, what they did was they took some other outcomes where they did see a benefit and they included those. And then they tooted their horn hard about that. Yeah, and so to me the problem there is the tooting your horn hard about it. It's not that they did it. So this this idea of, you know, if 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 your drug shows a benefit on one scale and not another, that's information. How much weight we put into it, sure, is determined by how many, you know, you're, are you just throwing everything at it? Like when we did the uh, Prevagen study and they, they took all these different things and reported on the one where they found a benefit, fine. It's like throwing a bowl, bowl of spaghetti at the wall. But I also think, you know, we don't want to, you know, if, 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 if they had specified in advance that, that these other measures were the ones they wanted to look at, then we would take it as, as valuable. I, I think there's too much weight put in this. And there's a statement in the paper, the reanalysis, that says, finally... Although the investigators can explore the data however they want, additional outcome variables outside those in the protocol cannot be legitimately declared once the study is underway, except as exploratory variables, appropriate for, for discussion as material and further, or as material for further study, but not for the main analysis. I don't fall quite on that scale. I mean, I, I think you have to be upfront about it, and I think you have to be very careful about the way you talk about it, but I think if we find something that's interesting... We should we should be able to talk about it, and I think that gets us into our second segment, really which does. is which segment. is what I wanted to transition into. So, in the second segment, we want to talk about a, a movement that's been going on in the psych world, something that is called pre-registration. Um, and I say something called because I don't know that this is something that the majority of people in our field in in epidemiology and in medical research know widely about. But the um, the idea came in response to the replicability crisis that's been going on in the psych world where studies have been done that come out. They have this really sort of interesting or splashy finding. But then uh, when people go to try and replicate these studies, and they're often small studies that are done, uh, scientists can't replicate the finding. The most famous example of this is the power posing study that that happened that came mm-hmm. out. It was a big deal. The idea that you can make yourself feel more powerful and, in fact, change your biochemistry uh, by actually assuming certain powerful poses. Um, 
it, 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 it was published, it became a big deal, and then people tried to replicate this and they couldn't. And this came, um, uh, began to highlight some, some various problems, one of which is the problem of p-hacking, the idea that you would just, you know, change your model and add more things until you got the answer that you want. So let me ask you guys this question. Or harking. Harking is another good one. Hypothesizing after the results are known. I like that one, although I, I like the acronym. I'm not what, sure I, I totally... What would the angels sing about? Uh, that's a good question. So let me ask you the guy this question. If you are studying some exposure in relation to some outcome... They were not talking about questionable research practices. I'm no, sure of it. I'm sure they were not. QR, QRPs. Questionable research, research practices. practices. That's another term I didn't know until I... Quirps. Quirps. Uh, so you're, you're studying some exposure in relation to some outcome. You've got reasonable power. So the study's well-powered. It's big enough sample size. If there's no effect of your exposure on the outcome... Which do you think is more likely, a p-value of 0.03 or a p-value of 0.85? There is truly no effect of your exposure on your outcome. Which of those two p-values is more likely? 0.03, I would guess, because of publication. No, 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 no. no, no, no. no. Okay, no, we're not having okay, publication okay. bias. So just, just you statistically. Do your study. Yeah, which one is more likely? No effect of the exposure on the outcome. I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. You tell me. You, you, I would assume you would have said the 0.85, because there is no effect. Or are they equivalent? Or what equivalent? 0.03 and 0.85? Those are p-values. P so values, they are right? not the equivalent. <laughs> There's well, two different numbers. But the distance from 0.05 is roughly no. the same. No. One's 0.03. One is 0.85. They're nowhere vastly different. We need to study hold harder on, for, this, on, for the on. next quiz. I was told there would be no math. I took a math class when I was a fellow. Okay. I think that's three and a half versus two. Yeah, I see what you mean. They're very different. <laughs> and the answer to the question is, if there's no effect of the exposure on the outcome, they're equally as likely. Right. Any p-value is, is, is just, it's essentially a random draw. And 5% oh, of the time yeah, you get a p-value below 0.05. Right, right. And 95% of the time you get a p-value above 0.05, assuming no bias, perfect study, random, right. all that. Does okay. chewing gum increase the risk of meteor strikes? Okay. Yes. For example. Exactly. Now, you're doing a study of an exposure which does have an effect on an outcome. Same scenario, you've got plenty of power. Which is more likely, a p-value of 0.05 or a p-value of 0. 0.0005? Don, you're, you, you have to embarrass yourself this time. <laughs> Don, I think they're equally likely. They are not. <laughs> two for two. If the, exposure, <laughs> if the exposure does have an effect, then the p-value distribution, the distribution of p-values is heavily skewed to the right such that lower, lower p-values are more likely. So the idea of a p-value between 0.05 and 0.01 is less likely than a p-value of point, between 0.01 and 0.001 the lower p-values, the very, very low p-values are more likely. And what that says is if you see a lot of p-values close to 0.05... That's suspicious. It's suspicious. Mm, it's not right. impossible, mm. but it's suspicious. If there's truly an effect of exposure, there. they shouldn't cluster around 0.05. They should cluster around 0.005. Unless it's being driven by p-hacking and, and uh, selective publication. And Which is why is, some people are suggesting that we actually lower the p-value. Yes. No, I'm, I'm, but that will just no, change no, the threshold. The you don't lower the p-value, you lower the alpha. All right. But but I'm not a fan of either one of those things, as you know. But anyway. So You're the an idea omega is man. That, again, what's that? You're an omega man. I'm an om omega man. I don't know what that means. But Okay. So anyway, you get the idea. And so the response to this, what, or this, to this and many other problems, is this idea of pre-registration. Chris, can you can you talk us through what this idea is? Right. So the basic gist of it is that that if you're a, a researcher and you do a study, and the study comes out with a p-value of say 0.06, meaning not 
quite good enough to pass that magical bar of significance, um, you're going to find it more difficult to get your, your paper published. So this is one of the genesis of, of um, publication bias. And so to avoid that, researchers engage willfully or maybe subconsciously in various questionable research practices so that they can enhance, enhance the probability of you know, getting that magic significant value on their result and therefore leading to publication in fame and fortune. Um, and this has a corrupting, corrosive uh, effect on the medical literature over time and is generally deemed to be a bad thing. Yep. So to get around that, you know, get around the fact that the journals are biased against not quite significant enough findings, what they're proposing is that you enter into sort of what is effectively a contract with a journal where you submit your background and method section with all your, your study objectives clearly stated, but without actually having done the experiment yet. So you do this at the beginning. Basically, you, you know, you, you write to you know, Journal X and you say, here is the experiment I'm going to do. It's been funded. You know, we've got IRB approval, blah, 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 blah. These are the primary objectives. Um, do you think that this is a valuable experiment? And if you do, will you publish the results? And the way we approach it is valid. And the way we approach it is valid, right. So it has to be a methodologically rigorous uh, approach. But if, you know, if we were to do this experiment as we have proposed, will you publish the results irrespective of whether we have a significant or a non-significant result and that we're basically committing to publishing the results of the trial full stop and not play this game of whether it looks sexy based yeah. on p-values? And and I think you, I think you nailed it. I mean, I think the idea here is is let's let's publish based on the on the, on the, the science and the importance of the questions and not the results. And therefore, that that people will not have the incentive to manipulate their results. They'll give us the the true results. They also will have specified exactly what their model how they're going to model their data is ahead of time, so they can't change it. Now you are actually allowed to to, to make changes, but then you have to you have to specify all the ways you deviated. Right. And as long as you were able to do what you said you were going to do, they agree to publish your paper. Don, do you think that this is something that we should be thinking about in the medical and epi literature? Yeah, I do think it's something that we should be thinking about, whether we adopt it or not. <laughs> wow. Uh, right is, on the is, fence there. Is another question. Okay. Um, you know, I I, I think the, I, I, the problem exists. Yeah. and and and, no it, and it really leads to this whole publication bias thing that we keep coming back to. And I think that that is harmful. It's harmful in terms of knowing the truth and 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 i think it is really one of the main one of the main reasons why there's this crisis of irreproducibility that is sort of sweeping across the the discipline where there are shocking numbers of um trials that are repeated of prior trials using the same conditions uh, that where the previous trial showed showed a significant effect and the repeat trial absolutely cannot do that yeah and you know it, it it's 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 kind of a come to jesus moment i think for the scientific community in in terms of are we really generating solid science are we yeah. generating facts that policy decisions can be based on like you know, like like the, an, an indication for an antidepressant in adolescence. Right. Or what we're really doing is is playing this game with the journals where we're creating this whole set of, of, of you know, um, 
perverse incentives for mal uh, for poor scientific conduct. Right, QRPs, QRPs. questionable QRPs. research practices. Yeah. yeah, and the other thing that I thought was really was really a, a smart idea about this is it allows for a upfront QC check about your methodology, quality control, quality control. You know, you're going to submit essentially not your protocol, but the first two parts of your paper with all the methods in it, and it gives the well, the reviewers a chance to to give you feedback and say, you know, I noticed X, Y, and Z. Did you consider doing this instead? Would you consider doing this instead? Wasn't that already done when you submitted your grant? To get funding for this? Well, I, I would say to a degree, but the, the methodology in, in a grant can be um, a little bit uh, vague in many cases. And, it, and, and for certain grant, uh, granting organizations like the NIH, you're not committed to using the methodology exactly that you specified in your, your grant. I mean, you're, you should generally as a matter of good practice. But, you know, I think it's often the case that circumstances change. Circumstances change, right. You know, and things can change. Whereas where at, when you're actually launching the trial, that is really the final step where the protocol itself should be scrutinized. We have to say, here's the plan. We're going to execute the plan. Does everybody agree that this should be the plan and it's the best plan? And then you do that and you come back and you find that it didn't work. And the journal is now committed to saying, despite having executed, you know, this faithfully executed this, this plan um, precisely, or, you know, to ask and answer this very important scientific question, we found that this thing does not work. And that is a useful result. Yeah. It didn't I work. Agreed. And we need, we, we should be publishing more null findings. And, and I, I really like this idea of thinking about, you know, the science and the methods before we think about the result and not publishing contingent based on the results. I struggle a little to understand whether we're talking here about trials, interventions, or whether we're talking about this would apply to observational studies as well, because with observational studies, you know, often the data already exist, right. and I could write the uh, I could write the the registered report, let's say, after I already know I've already done the analysis, let's say, right. and then pretend like I haven't. Now, obviously, I would we would trust people's scientific integrity, I assume, to to deal with that problem. But it seems to me this this makes more sense for trials than observational studies, but uh, observational studies need some. Or observational studies where there is primary data collection, because right. you can have observational studies that, that can fit these criteria, whereas secondary data analysis, as you're, you're referring to, is something that can potentially pose those problems where you can mix up the sequence of generating a hypothesis and doing the analysis. I'm, I'm just thinking, like, practically speaking, if you were trying to do this for, say, like the Framingham Heart Study, where they've, what, published how many thousands of papers now? Well, I mean, this is the, this is the criticism. Every one of those would be would be, you know, ineligible and maybe un, unrealistic. Well, so so so. But you might do some. Maybe, maybe because, um, um, I agree with you. I mean, I think that is the criticism that this gets is that it would essentially be onerous. But if you're, I mean, if you're going to write that 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 paper anyway, at some point you've got to write up the. The methods and the and the uh, you know the introduction, the justification of the question. So why not? It's true. Just do it ahead why of time. Not do it? The, but the problem is that that people you know too often are you know trolling their data sets. I agree. Looking at you know doing chi squares right and left, and then they say, oh, this one popped up, and suddenly you'll say, okay, is there any justification for this question? And it feels very like post hoc all of a sudden, like you you basically you've p hacked your way into writing a new paper. Yeah. So I agree. It's 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 
it's I think it doesn't fit quite well with observational studies and, and, and last may, point on maybe we need to think of it in a little bit of a different different construct I mean there's this whole concept of exploratory analyses so so if if you relegate that kind of a, an analysis that you just talked about Chris yep. um, into into that realm you can say okay well maybe this is a bona fide finding but it's an exploratory analysis so so it needs to be replicated so it's ripe for picking for replication and then yeah. once it's replicated it's an interesting idea then, uh, then, then it becomes, you know, it becomes uh, closer to a scientific truth. Yeah, and then, you know, then we say, okay, now we're going to do the registered version of this. Where a priori we say this is what we believe, and we commit to it, and then we do the study. Sure, I, it seems open to manipulation, but you know, everything. I mean, mm-hmm. the current system is very manipulated, and therefore. Uh, it seems interesting and worth worth yeah. thinking through. Certainly for RCTs, this would be a great safeguard. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, let's move on to our final segment. So we want to get into our Amazing and Amusing, where we highlight some of the things that go on in our field that uh, just make us uh, smile or give us a little bit uh, more incentive to come to work each day. So, uh, Don, you want to you wanna take it? First, sure. So um, I found a paper actually from the it was it was noted in the Economist in the March version of the Economist, which is one of my favorite places to pick up scientific findings. Sure. Um, and they reported on a paper by Marco Luza of Magna Gratia University in Italy. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and why, it, why should that get better treatment than everything else on this podcast? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> At least it's not a medical term. <laughs> like <laughs> like. Atrial fibrillation. Or angina. 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 <laughs> so um, this study is based on the concept that there is a behavioral immune system. Behavioral. Okay, so an, uh, an immune system that goes out and protects your body. Meaning that you from, behave in a certain way and people punch you in the playground? <laughs> or no, 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 no. It, you, you, Antibodies? Hold people, on, guys. Hold people, on. People, <laughs> no, we want to guess. What, what's this, charade? 20 questions. How many words? How many words? <laughs> First syllable. Bigger than a bread right. box? So humans have evolved to notice and avoid sources of infection. An infection. Infection. Right. Whether oh. it is rotten food oh, yeah, okay. or sickly individuals, i.e. through the... Why are you looking at me when you say <laughs> that? The, the, the smell, the uh, aversive or malodorous me? smells. So they hypo- these, these authors <laughs> hypothesized that there is a link between a person's sensitivity to malodorousness Ooh. and the likelihood of them being sympathetic to... get. get Wait for it. Right-wing authoritarian. What? <laughs> Wait a minute. So they, if go they smell... Now. I'm serious. They, they so, so if they... Wait, how have, do those go together? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't even... I don't know. I don't know. So, <laughs> you know, so the, the behavioral plausibility of it is to, to be quite... Anyway. What, wait, what does it have to do with immune... Okay, go ahead. Go. So, go, so, go. So the authors <laughs> developed a body odor disgust scale called BODS. <laughs> Based on asking volunteers questions about different scenarios, such as noticing that a friend's feet smell, <laughs> which is a scale that correlates on a, it's a, we, one, it's a one to five scale. Can we get the scale here in this room? <laughs> how, a strong, how strongly a person reacts to bad smells. So then they used the Amazon Mechanical Turk method, which is, <laughs> What's that? Which is an online way to do surveys where small, oh, yeah, small yeah. tasks are yeah. given cash rewards. Yeah. So they amassed globally 201 volunteers and they, uh, they looked at the BOD scale um, and whether it correlated with the tor- authoritarian views such as, quote, our country needs a powerful leader in order to destroy the radical and moral currents prevailing in society today. Who would say that? <laughs> 
That's right. So the results were that there were high BOD scores, i.e. they were smell sensitive. Smell sensitive. Correlated with authoritarian views. There was no correlation with high BOD scores and generally conservative views. So it was specific to authoritarian authoritarian views. views. Then because the study was done in 2016 during a very contentious election, they did it again and they repeated it using 159 Americans and they found a similar pattern. Hmm. And in their analysis, they felt as if this explained about 4 to 16% of the variance associated <laughs> between BODs huh. and authoritarian views. And then they looked at voting intentions, and they increased the sample size again. They looked at, they had- 300. 300, 300 <laughs> no, it's a whole other study. Okay. 391 participants, Americans, and they, high BODs scores, i.e. smell aversion, correlated with voting for Trump, but not for Hillary. Huh. Wow. I don't and of think course, that, Trump is a famous germaphobe. I know. So, <laughs> wow. but I don't, I don't, I, you know, back to oh, so, I don't think this passes um, the smell sniff oh, test. Okay. <laughs> Didn't see that coming. I'm going to say, <laughs> I'm going to say that I love that, despite the fact that I don't buy those results at all. <laughs> really? I love the study. Correlation does love not equal it. causation. Love we're, it, we're, we're don't get buy the results at all. Can <laughs> I, can I just say something? Uh, so when I was uh, just, just out of college, uh, my friend of mine had her first job at uh, Gillette, she was working at as a microbiologist. Gillette makes deodorants. Gillette the stadium? And, or the, oh, all right. You no, know, Gillette the company down here in Boston. And they make deodorants and all that sort of stuff. And you could get extra money. You could get like overtime pay or whatever, extra money uh, to be a product tester. So you could test the deodorants. You could go and sit in a, like put on the deodorant and sit in the sweat chamber room or sauna or whatever it is and see how much you would sweat. Or... And I believe you got paid more for this. You could volunteer to be the sniffer, person the who sniffer? sniffed them oh and smelled how bad they smell. Oh so it's a real thing. A lot yeah, of it's real practical I, applications. Did, they had no authoritarians. <laughs> I don't know. Wow. I don't know. We could probably try and access the data and find out. Did you get one of these jobs? <laughs> no, I did not. That was a close shave. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Nick, cut that out. <laughs> That's just way below his standard. Chris, what do you got right, for right. us? So, um, you know, I'm I'm prone to long-winded stories. I've no what? You have mentioned it on occasion. So this so, is going to be more of the same. It's going to be it's going to be a short, long-winded story. But this gonna, this was hold a. On. Let me uh, assume a comfortable position here. So you know how um, when we are looking at the relatedness of animals or bacteria or viruses, we do these genetic phylogenetic trees, which sort of show how different you know bacteria or you know, cheetahs versus mountain lions are related in terms of their, their evolution of their DNA. Yes. And we create these, these branching things called phy- phylo- phylogenies. So these guys um, did the same thing, except looking at the, phylo- the phylogeny of fairy tales um, in Europe. Um, Who are these guys? Th- this was a, um, uh, a set of researchers. Uh, the original paper is the old, hmm, where is it? Uh, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> I think to them it does. It's in, it's, well, because this was a, this was a dispatch, so this is like a, a summary of the other guy's paper. And I, I can't, I, I can't okay. know what the we'll original go, paper is. We'll get back to the we'll listener. Back to that. Somebody anyway, did it doesn't much something. matter. Somebody and somebody did is. some analysis in journal. I hope someday my work is described that way. <laughs> they found a really interesting result. Let me tell you. <laughs> 
But they, 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 they did the same thing where they looked at vocabulary across the Indo-European languages okay. as a way of sort of like, you know, changes in the words that were used or the way the in words were spelled. In fairy tales? It, in fairy tales in across fairytale. multiple different languages as a way of sort of like inferring the, the series of mutations in the words that occurred uh, over the eons. And they actually so used... linguistic phylogeny. Linguistic phylogeny, right. And they, and they actually used the same kind of software analysis program that they used for doing wow. gene, genetic analysis. So, so it was, you know, and they went and they found that there were 275 dominant fairy tales. And of those, <laughs> they narrowed it down to a, a group that, that of 76. And it all goes back to one guy for, in the Bronx. For which, right, who just spun some, some, some wild ones. They had 76 oh, where they felt that they... <laughs> They could, uh, yeah, Bronx cheer? Uh, no, <laughs> we're not talking. Grim. I said it's Grim. Grim. Oh, Grim, yeah. Grim's fairy tales is part of this. Yes. Um, anyway, it turns out that some of the, the popular fairy tales, like Beauty and the Beast, uh, go back to over 7,000 years. Um, wow. These are, these are really old stories. And Seven, they, seven thousand. Isn't that, isn't that before invented language? <laughs> no, no, we were, we were grunting. <laughs> anyway, uh, um, uh, so it's kind of, kind of amazing. And the oldest tr tale of all is something called The Smith and the Devil, um, which we know as the French opera Faust. Oh. Where the guy sells his soul to the devil in terms of acquire skills in his trade and become successful, and that one probably goes back uh, even longer to you know eight thousand uh, years or older. It's a really old so story. So the first deal was a Faustian deal. Yes, it was. There Shocking. Very cool. Yeah, I thought it was a neat, neat, neat little study. All right. Published by some guys in some journal. Oh wow! I'm sure their <laughs> their parents would be very proud of them. And secondarily cited by another guy whose name I forgot. Okay, so I for mine I went uh, straight down the middle this time to follow up on some of the things that we've been talking about for a while now, which is uh, registered reports and, you know, clinical trial registries and all those things. Um, and I just wanted to highlight something that I saw that I'm really impressed by, which is that the BMJ, British Medical Journal, uh, has, put, has started a new series. Uh, so this is written up in the BMJ by Ben Goldacre, uh, Nicholas DeVito, Carl Hennigan's, Oh, I'm not even going to keep going because I'll Angina. get names wrong. Some guys Angina. in some journal. Sela Lane and Richard Stevens. And uh, and it's called, they say introduce the title of this article, but it's introducing the series, Introducing Unreported Clinical Trial of the Week. Oh. And so this is a series where they are going to go publish once a week. They're going to go into the clinical trial registry, presumably, find uh, an important trial that should have had results by now and never oh. published. Uh, and this is like public shaming. And yeah, and they're going to, you know, see if this has a, hopefully has a benefit in terms of getting people to publish the results or at least call people out for registering trials and never reporting the results back in. So it's a wall of shame? I think that's it's, pretty it's much... It's not that they contact the, the authors and have them post their results nope. or publish their results, just that shame, nope. shame? Just, yeah. They, they say, we hope this will make the rather abstract issue of publication bias more concrete, shed light on the problem, provide a forum to discuss challenges and misunderstandings around trial reporting, and ultimately improve reporting rates. Our initial sample of unreported trials will be drawn from those recently breaching the FDA Amendments Act of 2007, which requires clinical trials in the U.S. to be reported within 12 months of completion, and was initially hailed as proof of the publica proof the publication bias has now been addressed. And I didn't know this. Did you know that, um, that you can be fined uh, for not publishing your results in clinical trials that fines of up to $10,000 per day yeah. for every overdue trial, but no such fine has ever, ever been, been levied. Have you been levied? But you yeah. can be fined wow. massive amounts for, 
for not doing this, which I didn't, I didn't even realize was a thing. So I, you know, I, I just, I thought this was pretty, pretty neat that they're going to do this. And I, I applaud them for I, taking that I, forward. I agree. I think that what they ought to also do is they also ought to include studies where subsequent letters have pointed out significant flaws and the authors have not published a correction. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It's an interesting, interesting idea. Are you yeah. going to start that series? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well done. Don's journal. Don's, the journal of Don. <laughs> All right. Well, you've made it to the end of the program. If you've got any feedback you've on this. wasted another hour. <laughs> if you've got any feedback or this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you or can send, tweet us. send Matt a pronunciation guide. Or you want to send me a pronunciation guide, you can tweet us at at PopHealthyX or you can tweet me at at ProfMattFox or you can tweet Quiz, 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 Quiz. <laughs> Christopher Gill. At, at ID.Gill. <laughs> or Don at. You know what? Just don't tweet Don. Or you can find us ever does. on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. I would love if somebody would tweet me. Some, all your tweets go to the other Don. Okay, so can I just say. No, so I, I am, never get a direct tweet. I'm sure I'm not the first person who have thought of this, but I would like a new system whereby you have to pay five cents for every tweet that you tweet. Ooh. But you can get a penny back for everyone who likes your tweet oh, or retweets your tweet. Cunning. That would cut down on the number of tweets and the number of likes of tweets and retweets of tweets. I know, I could and might limit it to things system. that were more important. You got to get out more, Matt. What if you had 10 friends too. <laughs> who retweeted you and you just like paid, cut, gave I also, a cut, I cut also of the proceeds? I would like to know, can I, can I copyright a hashtag? So that people have to pay me every time they use it. That's anyway. Sure can. All right. So we'd like to thank Leslie Talali and Director of Lifelong Learning at BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you download the next episode. We just hope you come back. <laughs> See you later. Bye. Adios. Bye.